Dropping the hammer. No, you're not. How long are we going? Four hours? Five <laughs> hours? Or is, it, is this a marathon? Are we, are we marathoning a podcast? Light, lightning rounds. Lightning rounds. <laughs> But I really I wish we had like a, a spin dial that we could just like spin it. All right, what are we talking about? <laughs> so, well, so okay, don't, don't think about it as how mm. long is this podcast. Think about it as how much content we've created. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's the friends you've made along the way. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not about the ending; it's about the journey. Um, so like we're okay since you're the since you're the guest, Matt. All right, where, where do you want to start? Do you want to start with the the what happened yesterday? The incredible race on sunday in new hampshire or where, where do you want to start listen i i don't even know like what what are my options here because we can go back as far as you want it's been a couple of months since we've done the show last so but we can we can go into next gen and we can go into <laughs> safety uh concerns we can go back that far i mean i don't even know what the topics on the table are just because you know okay. whether it's from a nascar standpoint from a, a larger yeah. motorsport standpoint there's a lot going on yeah in the racing world right now so, so okay. let, let me jump in here can y'all explain to me the safety concerns because it, it is as a casual <laughs> word i am very confused because it seems like oh no red flag just kidding um this was just a rumor no really this is bad I have no clue what's going on. It's a on. rumor or the absence of anything. That's that's all all there is to talk about is a rumor or the absence of actual information. But uh, <laughs> I think that's a great place to start. We'll we'll start with the car. Okay. Okay. You you want you want to lobby a question oh, or okay so so those listening um the the Twitter sphere the Reddit sphere got sent into a tailspin two weeks ago. <laughs> um over vague tweets from people either sort of in like in the, in the industry tans generally in the industry and then about concerns over the safety of the next gen car it the which had been uh delayed basically until this week um I've, uh, and then chase briscoe sent a one-word reply to someone on reddit and all he was doing was confirming the a hypothetical situation that had been presented concerning the, uh, a test at Talladega so and let's, whether let's a... With, let's start with the crash dummy. Let's just put it out there, point blank. There were tales of a beast crash dummy. And yes. I, I think from kind of piecing together backwards <clears> what <throat> happened, um, I don't have the exact dates in front of me, but they, they eventually tested the, the new car with an, an, an intentional crash test at Talladega. Yeah. They had wanted to do it the week before. So I think June. 30th, gonna, I think, I think that's what delayed it was the mechanism. Right. Yeah. Failing. Get into that. That, that, so, that's my takeaway was, yeah. Right, the, so June 30 was the actual day. Yeah. They did the intentional crash test. They wanted to do it the <clears> week before June 23rd. They couldn't get the sled that would propel the car towards the wall to do the intentional yeah. crash test correctly to work and so now now that i've kind of pieced this all together i can tell you what happened i got a i got a text that wednesday from a, a source of mine with a race team in the garage that says oh the test failed <laughs> and i'm like what do you mean failed he's like i don't know I'm, I'm, I'm still piecing it together i get another text from someone else in the garage the very next day so now we're talking thursday and they said hey they tested the car at Talladega. It failed. I'm like, I heard that already. Do you know what happened? And they said, yeah, they killed a crash dummy. I'm like, oh. okay. That's, that's, <laughs> if true, that's wild. Now, keep if in mind. True. If I told, true. I, right, yeah. right, right. And I, I told you this too. Like, I, I get so much information or perceived information every day that um, I, 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 don't, I don't run with. But it, it's it's contextually relevant, right? I mean, it's kind of the the building blocks for how we put yeah. together stories and information. <laughs> I mean, even today, I mean, I, I'll just no one knows who this is. So I'll just read, I'll I'll read it not verbatim, but I'll kind of read it loosely. Um, I had someone with a cup team say that they had a conversation today with one of the parts supplier, and 
all, all the equipment is really good. All the parts and components are really good. This person with one of the vendors isn't sure that they can have a car put together in time, a fleet of cars put together in time to do the full schedule next year. That the timeline is very okay. Now, is that one person something to worth, you know, run with, run a story with? No. Absolutely but not. Right. But it's contextually relevant because this person, they know what they're talking about. Um, so then you start to do from our end, you start to talk to other people in the garage, yeah. you talk to NASCAR, you talk to the parts suppliers, <laughs> the vendors, and you try to figure out what are you hearing? What's real here? And in yeah. the case of this, this crash test, they didn't do the crash test until one week later, yeah. in which case that data still was inconclusive. And they sent it off to an independent review. And we found out this week yes. that the, the data from the actual crash test not the hypothetical, the rumored one, the one that didn't happen, yeah. test failing, that NASCAR was satisfied with what they saw. And they're going to begin delivering the chassis components from Technique, the company that builds the, the chassis, to teams by the end of the week. There's still another element of this that I still need to see, that we all need to see, NASCAR is supposed to give that data, the one that yeah. they said they were pleased with, to the drivers. We haven't got that yet. We haven't heard from the drivers anyway that they've gotten that. And we might not until after the Olympics anyway. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. But like, still, like, like NASCAR confirmed the results on Sunday. It's fine. Now, now I imagine they need to take all of that information that they've been given and put it into a digestible format for the drivers. So, and this is where I want to get at, by the way, not just for the drivers, for everyone. I'm not saying this yeah. selfishly because I, I I exist in this bubble where I need content and stories to disseminate and to pass along. I mean, yeah, it's part of it. But I also think as a larger member of this community, I care about the safety of oh, those yeah. who participate. And I want to see it too, just, just to know. And I think one of the biggest problems and hurdles that NASCAR ran into is they were not transparent. Yeah. Just tell us what you do or don't know, because if your frustration is, is that there's a lot of hearsay and a lot of, uh, what was the word <clears throat> Scott Miller used? Scott Miller said a, a lot of fiction. Yeah. You tell us what's fact. Like, tell tell, us, what, tell us what the nonfiction is. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, that, well that, that's, that's what I wrote in my column this week. I don't know if you read it or not, but it's like the, the, the reason all of this took hold was was from a lack of anything official from from NASCAR, and we eventually got statements from NASCAR because of all the internet even, chatter. Even then, that information is not something that should give you a lot of comfort because I need data, right? Yeah. I mean, right now, all all you're giving me back, if you're NASCAR, is more feeling and and words. And not numbers. I, I I want to see numbers. I know the drivers want to see numbers. And I think it was Denny. It was Denny. Denny at um, uh, Atlanta, where he said, you know, where there's where there's smoke, there's fire. And, uh, and I, I mentioned that in my columns. Like, turns out there was smoke from a smoke machine. Um, no, 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 no. Because until <laughs> until listen, listen. If they've NASCAR's seen the numbers, they've yeah. seen the data. The data they passed along to the independent review panel, they've seen it. If it was like glowingly perfect, like this is ready right now, we, we feel confident to race it tomorrow, they would tell us. This car is far from a finished product. And that's part oh, yeah, of it. Oh, I'm completely aware of that. I, I still think if there's a conviction in the garage that some of these components and parts that they're buying will never see the light of day of a racetrack. And that, that's a problem. That's, that's, that's another problem that we're going to run into now. Okay, So we're going to start putting these cars together. We're going to run a big group test. We're going to have multiple yeah. big group tests. And we're going to have other crash tests. There might even be crashes in this test. And they're going yeah. to look at that data and say, okay, well, this part didn't do what it needs to do. We're going to replace this part with another part. So now you've made 36 charter teams by parts that they're not actually going to race with. That's a problem. But but when uh when the, when they debuted the, debuted the car you know a couple months ago like the manufacturers told me like when I talked to manufacturer officials like 
the, the car that gets put on track isn't going to be the final product. We're, we're going to be building this this track as we're going along through through, through next season, probably and in the next one. I want to be so. very clear about this part. So You can't have a cost containment race car and then sell a team a race car that one-third of the parts that you just sold them, you're never going to race. Now, I say a third arbitrarily. I'm just making a number <laughs> up so we don't know. We haven't actually tested all the cars together yet but that's the challenge you're going to run into there are some teams that as of a week and a half ago this has changed surely because the cars are being released the chassis are being released so this is not the latest information but as of a week and a half ago and this is july 21st that Mm -hmm. we're recording this that just so i can be clear and transparent so as of uh july 10th 11th 12th there were some teams that were not gung-ho about buying the chassis yeah or the whole car because there's which i completely I, which i completely understand like there's a little conviction that this car that they're going to buy is the parts that they're going to race now mm-hmm. is that not naturally part of the r d process i'm sure it is yeah and everyone's on board we all know <clears throat> there's two things i want to say so I think everyone knows there's going to be parts and pieces that we as an industry buy that we're not going to race. And it's part of the R&D process and it's part of the assumed budget. Point two, we have to, we have to try to kill crash dummies. By the way, <laughs> even, even if we do kill a crash dummy, that doesn't mean it's bad. Yeah. I'll tell you yeah. this, I'd rather be aware of something that would kill a crash dummy in July and August than be made aware in February or March. Well, oh, I think that, I, I think when we, when we, me and you were swapping texts or DMs, like my main question was like, when was this supposed dummy killed? Like at what point in the process? Because I, at that point, I didn't know that there, that was, there'd only been one crash test. So that, 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 that was my main question. Like, when was this? Transparency. Tell us what <laughs> yeah. you've done. And, yeah. and, and you know, by the way, since we had that conversation and, and the, main point I hammered home in our private conversation was, is just give us the transparency. Mm-hmm. You had, you know, 40 car owners or 40 cars, 40 teams, and their drivers all saying, hello, we don't know anything. Just tell us something. And that's like, none of your business. We're not going to tell you anything. And they're like, I don't think, I don't think the none of your business thing. I don't think that's their attitude with it. I, I, yeah, it was period. Like I, I want to put that on the record right now is that several team general managers or owners said we need to know what you know right now and the response was we're not telling you right now problematic and such a fuss was made about it that Wednesday and that Thursday that by the time we got to or I might have my days mixed up because they all run together but the day that they finally came out Scott Miller jumped on Sirius XM and said here's what we know that was a response to the teams getting ticked off about being told privately that we can't tell you. So understand the teams first went to NASCAR privately and said, give us the information. And the sanctioning body said in in no uncertain terms, not right now, no, or we don't have anything for you, whatever. So then there was a public response to that on social media, in the media center, through the press, and then came the public response from NASCAR, here's what we know. If the initial response had been, here's what we know, you would have solved a lot of problems. You would have, you would have solved the, the, the rumors of a crash dummy test. You would have solved the rumors of uh, you're not listening to us. Uh, you're not you know, giving us the information that we need. You would have solved all of that. Mm-hmm. So I still, right now, none of us do, understand why there was that initial lack of desire to give the teams the information because they're buying the car. They're, they're, they're both the competitors and the customers. So I, I just, I'm not doing this to dunk on NASCAR because I'm sure, yeah. I'm sure they have a reason and, yeah. a, and a philosophy, but I'm just saying that no one is served in a vacuum of, of information. Is it oh. possible that there's some kind of uh, issue with uh, companies that are contracted for testing or something like that, that could like they legally not be able to disclose it initially and then they had to get some kind of written permission when there's smoke there's fire so listen 
if listen, if everything was great and perfect, they would just tell us it's great and perfect. And by the way, the fact that it's probably not great and perfect is normal and to be expected. So I don't I don't want to sensationalize it, but if it was great and perfect, they would tell us that it's great and perfect. However, this is very early in this process because we haven't had you know group testing yet. We don't even have cars constructed. We don't know how they race, how they crash. So it's not perfect. And that's part of the process. Yeah. That's why they haven't told us how great and perfect it is. It's not great and perfect. And that's okay. I want to I want to stress the nuance there that it's that that's okay. We have to spend now as an industry, we're running out of runway here. It's July. So we got to spend the next five months, whatever, you know, making it perfect. But we're just not there yet. Yeah. Let me get this point out too, because I, I wrote this and a handful of people picked up on it because I don't think anyone else included this in their stories. And I got this from several teams. So it's true. Um, the crash that Byron had, and by the way, this is why there's a concern for safety. And this is why it's not great and perfect. When Byron, this is over a year ago now, yeah. with the crash at Auto Club. March had, last year? It was yeah. March of, he yeah. kind of glanced off the wall. He didn't hit the wall. And so I think a lot of people kind of shrugged it off and said, well, it's it's fine. He didn't really crash it. The G-forces that he experienced when the car, you know, reversed, the G-forces were double that of the Eric Jones and the Denny Hamlin impacts at the Brickyard 400 last year. And those are really hard hits, if you recall. I remember I remember the Denny Hamlin one. I don't specifically remember the Eric Jones one. So it was the it was the same impact velocity or the or the how was I explaining that? It was the same impact. I have in my story. At half the speed, the same impact velocity. So had he impacted the wall, it would have been almost double the impact of the Brickyard 400 crashes. And that was the, the source of the concern because that's information we do have. We do know for a fact. We have seen that data as in the industry. Those of us who have dug for it or, or know where to look for it, that information is there. We, we have seen it. So the drivers and the teams, the, what very little crash data they had because we haven't done a crash test yet until Talladega. The only time that a car got sideways and backwards and you can kind of test the G-forces was Byron at Auto Club, and that wasn't good. Like, we can't have a car hit the wall at that impact velocity because that's bad. That, 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 I think I think Kevin Harvick might have been the one who voiced it. So, someone voiced it, um, and I agreed with them. Like, why, why have we had drivers testing the car before we've done a crash test? <laughs> right, like, and that, that was the concern because they've all so, seen the data from the Byron incident and they know what those G-forces were, and they've had multiple drivers in the car who could have hit the wall at that impact velocity, and that could have been bad. So, yeah, uh, you're right. You're definitely right. So, like, but, yeah, the, yeah. two weeks ago, it was just weird, though, see, seeing Twitter just, oh, the, the next-gen car is a failure, based off of some unsourced or unverified tweets and one Reddit response. And it was like, that was very concerning to me is that like a lot of people just suddenly wrote off that car based off of basically nothing. I don't, listen, I don't, I don't think anyone was writing off the car. There was, but there I, was I think that, was listen, when, when you have something as sensitive as this brand new racing platform and you don't have information on it and you feel like someone has that information and they're not yeah. sharing it with you, your reaction is to get indignant, to get mad. Now, the other layer of nuance is I got to make sure that I don't throw. This is a sensitive thing, right? So who has the most to gain by criticizing this car? The people who the car is putting out of work. So I think that's something else that you have to run through the filter. So when crew members, when fabricators, when they're the ones that are criticizing the car, that's data. That data matters. The things that they hear and in the conversations they have behind the scenes, I, I take that data in and I add it to my collection of texts and emails and say, okay, that's data. But I also have to run it through the filter and go, this car is putting you out of work. So yeah. if you're, you're especially critical of the car, I hear you. And I think there's some things there to kind of gleam and 
there's contextual value, but the context is the car is putting you out of work. So there's just a lot of things to consider and you got to think about who you're getting that information from. And there's probably an element of truth to everything that you hear, but to what degree you ramp it up to 50 to 100 is based on whether or not I think that you have an agenda behind wanting to, to either delay it a year or half a year. Because mm -hmm. by the way, the door bumper clear guys. So I, this is not a fun name source because I was listening to their show last week. So these are three spotters. We all know who they are. Yeah. They all agreed. They didn't see that car running the full schedule next year. I'm not sure how much there is to buy into that or not. But the point is, I, I use that as an example because that conviction is there in the garage. They they're hearing that just like I'm hearing that. Now, granted, I'm hearing it from a lot of fabricators who would be the biggest people to benefit from having half the season run with the Gen 6 car, which requires <laughs> needing fabricators. So all this is to say, all data matters. All the information matters. Yeah. It's from a lot of people who have spent years and decades working in the sport around people who are smart, who are informed, who are in the know. But all information has to be run through a contextual filter. And this has kind of turned into a much larger conversation about you know, the, the journalism ethics. Yeah. Really, really fan, fandom in general, too. I mean, I would encourage all fans to think about where you're getting that information from, too, because it's valid. But just here, I'm a great example. Anytime that I talk about just the facts of NA18D, you need to run it through the filter that I hate the fucking shit. I hate it. I bleep, bleep, make track. sure you bleep that crap. <laughs> Don't believe it. It's trash. It's horse. Bleep that too. Now, with that said, I write some really informed, really educated, factual, scientific, um, engineering-based stories about all matter of, of racing packages, IndyCar's various rules packages, Cup Series packages. But I would encourage everyone that when you read a, a breakdown from an engineering standpoint on the rules packages, Keep in mind where I stand on it because that's fair. I think it's just important to be transparent. And that's mm -hmm. the theme of all of this. It's important for everyone to be transparent with what you know, where you're coming from. So, so, so do you, does this mean you need, like, at the top of any story about the high downforce package, you need to have, like, an asterisk disclaimer? Matt Weaver is a vowed hater of the high downforce package. No, no, no. Because <laughs> listen, when I, when I write something that is very clearly my opinion, AutoWeek has this great function on our on our CMS, our our platform that we post our stories. That if it's in a, a column yeah. or an editorial, we click the box. It says, yeah. it says opinion label, and it puts it right there at the top of our story, and it says okay. opinion. So it takes care of that for me. All right. But listen, but we can we can have that conversation too. I, it's interesting because I I think that the way that I conduct my business in general wouldn't fly 20 years ago. Oh, no. It was a different era then too. And I'm aware of it, but I'm also a creature of, of my time, of my era. And I recognize that in today's media landscape, it's not enough just to be Walter Cronkite. Here's the news. People want to know, what does this mean? What does this, yeah. what does this news mean? What, what, what does this mean moving forward? And then they think, then they, they, they tell you, well, what do you think? 20 years ago, I would have told you it doesn't matter what I think. But I, I think to exist in this landscape, in this you know, media landscape that we all find ourselves in, we all have to kind of balance presenting the facts, the perspective, and then the opinion. And it requires you to do all three. And sometimes giving my opinion on one compromises the facts and the truth that I told you in one. And all I can do to make that work is just be transparent. And I have to be totally honest with my with my readers and my listeners or my viewers or whatever at all times and and say when something's my opinion, this is my opinion, or when I'm presenting facts and evidence and truth that this is it. And all you can do to foster that trust is to be transparent and honest with people at all times. This is my opinion. 
this is the truth. It's kind of a slippery slope, and I, I'm aware of that. And that's just the era that we live in in digital media in 2021. And I'm not totally sure outside. I mean, even even Bob can, can sometimes you know clap back. Bob is the ultimate just the facts guy. But Bob writes columns sometimes too. Yeah. I mean, he, he's got his three takeaways. You know, he he pointed out in his column this week that you know hopefully this is the end of the PJ one era, the track bite era. That's an opinion. That's not a fact. Yeah. So I, I think that's an example of how all of us are sometimes challenged in what we do um, in trying to present the truth and then trying to present our opinion. Gluck. Gluck is like the, the best example of the modern archetype. Gluck's a great reporter. He's a great columnist. He's a great media personality. He's a great ambassador for, for NASCAR racing and racing in general. And, you know, I think sometimes this is it's not a slight on one of my absolute best friends and the only reason why i'm here is jeff but sometimes jeff has opinions that probably compromises the truth and the facts too because that's how it works for all of us and it's just it's frustrating to me because i i I wish i said this yesterday on twitter i wish that i could have lived in the 80s you know working for you know winston cup scene grand national scene and just had a a once a week publication and that's where i put my information no 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 immediacy no urgency because that's what creates a lot of these conflicts and no no, no comments or quote tweets right so <laughs> you, you just have to exist in the era that you're in and I, I love it and I love what I do but there's times where it's hard you know getting just into the you know meta journalism though I for me you know looking back at the reporting from the 80s and before like i there was still bias because you're still biased in where your facts come from. And that's the big, I mean, that was the big like issue with Walter Cronkite is that when, if you just stick to facts, you're only as good as your sources and your, and the spin they give you. And so like you're talking about with, you're only talking to the fat, you're mostly talking to the fabricators in the back and you're getting a skewed perspective of what's going on. And it's up to you as a journalist to inform your readers that, you know, that there is, that perspective you know and and that they need to filter what they're reading from you through that to be able to get something get closer to the truth that's a great point and it's something that i've thought about a lot and i've heard this from other people and other forms of medium and i've kind of embraced this philosophy but the philosophy is i don't owe you anyone i don't know i don't owe you the, the larger you i don't owe you a lack of, of bias we all come from various perspectives. We've all lived our various lives and we've all been subjected to whatever our, whatever our experience is. I don't, I don't, like we all have bias, right? I mean, we're human. We're not, we're not, you know, outside of Bozy, we're not robots. Yeah. <laughs> um, but outside of Bozy, we're not robots. So I don't owe you a lack of bias. I owe you fairness. Yeah. And I think that's been kind of my, my guiding star. I, I feel like, People will argue and everyone's mileage may vary, but I feel like I am fair in anything that I do. But the most important thing is to is to be honest and transparent. Well, well I agree. Like, um, like with my writing, I mean, I've been doing this for seven years. Like I have biases. Like there's drivers I like, there's drivers I despise, but I I believe you couldn't read a word of what I've written in, in the seven years and know what those biases are, hopefully. That, that's my belief that, that that could happen um but you mentioned like the 80s yeah i would really like to to experience a season in like 1986 and that that media atmosphere but like every time i hear stories told by journalists from then i cringe at just how much it seems like they were buddy buddies with, dri- with drivers in the garage like they, they, they were hanging out they're going to do stuff together it seems like it's like i don't like that at all Okay, and so, I, I want I want to know like how much of the reporting from that era is contaminated uh, because of um, oh, oh, yeah. Listen, listen, it's no different now too. I mean, listen, we've been around this game. We know we know the relationships that are there. And again, I think the key is is that you have to be honest about who you know, who you know really well. Um, I mean, listen, this is a great example. Okay, I spend so much time in pavement late model circles 
I have known Chase Elliott for the better part of 12 years. I've known Eric Jones for the better part of no, eight years. I've known you know William Byron since he first first started running pro late models for Daniel Hemrick. Daniel Hemrick, known him for uh, seven eight years. Um, I've done a ton more dirt in recent years. I've gotten to know Christopher Bell and and Kyle Larson pretty well. I don't I don't go hang out at people's houses. Uh, I don't go party. I'm a partier anyway, so I don't even know. I don't even know what that would even look like. But obviously, uh, when you spend a lot of time with your your subjects, for lack of a better term, um, you get to know them. And you forge relationships. You forge bonds. Um, and you, you can do two things with that, right? One is going to give you access to perspective. Um, it'll help you break stories. Because sometimes people yeah. are going to lean on you to tell a story when no one else is telling it, or they think that you're the best conduit or or microphone to get that message out. <clears throat> the other thing that, that you can choose to do or not to do is there's going to be a situation that comes up where it's important to tell a story, but if you tell it, you're going to compromise that relationship. Yeah. And the most important thing to do is to tell the story anyway, because you have you would hope that if there's some relationship there they would understand that because that means they know who you are and what you stand for and listen some people are better than that than others I have been better at times with certain people than others and I I try to be aware of it and I try to internalize you know could I have done a better job with that one I think I do okay there but I I just think it's important to be honest where you come up short where you screw up um I mean, listen, I'll give you a good example. I mean, the Blaney thing from Phoenix two years ago. I missed the context on that one. I, well, I, I you, you're, you're going to have to refer. I don't. To, I don't. 20, 2019, might, 2019 might as well be 2010 at this point. Listen, what happened to Phoenix? <laughs> Blaney? Yeah. So, okay. So I don't want to make this a long story, but Blaney had been eliminated from the, the, the final four. He was, he was, he was part of the, the group of eight. And okay. he was eliminated at Phoenix, the race before Martinsville. And he was in close to the end. And there was an incident that happened again was so long ago. But he didn't make it into the cut, the final four. And he walked right past the bullpen. And he was walking with, like, some color, man. He was he, – he looked hot. And I just tweeted that, that Blaney had walked by the bullpen and – did not take questions. He comes back. He comes back like four minutes later and he's fine. He's fine. He takes questions. And I even, I even responded to myself and said, you know, Blaney's come back. He's fielding questions now, but it was over by that point. Blaney saw it like an hour later. Oh, I think quote, I remember this now. I remember yeah, this now. Yeah, he quote retweeted me and, and blew me up. And I, I apologize in advance for missing the context. He claims that he had, to, he said to use the bathroom. That was the most angry looking bathroom wall. <laughs> really had to go. But whatever, it doesn't matter. I got it wrong. I got it wrong. But I, I had sent, you know, a text to, to, to his PR. Ian was like, man, I, I think I might have missed that one. Like, I apologize. It was, I screwed up. I, I did it publicly. I did it privately. It didn't matter. He was hot. He was probably hot because he got eliminated from the championship race. And, you know, he blew me up on Twitter and listen, I deserved it. Like I got it wrong. Mm. And this is all to say part of this larger conversation that it's just super important. So when you, you, you do something right, you provide that context, you explain how you got that information, if you can, whatever. And when you get something wrong, you explain how you got it wrong and just try to be as transparent as possible and move on. And so again, that's part of a much larger conversation mm. that was years ago. Um, I hope, I hope there's no bad blood there. I understand why he blew me up. I wish he wouldn't have. Um, <laughs> but at the time, I deserved it. I got my ass kicked by the fans for it, and it makes you better too. So, listen, I'll, I'll say this: this fan base, and I love them for it. They'll make you better. Like, forget you know Blaney blowing you up on Twitter or whatever. That's part of the business. The fans holding you accountable. That's the toughest love 
that you can get. And I love them for it because they've made me better and they've made me more, you know, methodical and thoughtful about my own process. Mm-hmm. And so even I say this because I'm, I'm talking to the fans now that if there was any ever moment that, that you were disappointed in me or mad at me and you, you wanted to let me have it, I understand. I appreciate you for it. Hopefully you've given me the chance to do the job better. And if you haven't yet and you hear this, give me the chance to do the job better because I try. Thank you for, for coming to Matt Weaver's TED Talk. <laughs> I, I care so much about all of this. Like, yeah, yeah. Whether it's the sport as a whole, because I am a fan first. I grew up in a racing family. I am a racer. My dad's a racer. My grandpa was a racer. I'm a racing guy. Mm-hmm. But I also love this profession. I, I love the trust that you know a million people you know, read my stories over a year or whatever. I'm just throwing an arbitrary number out there. I love the trust they have in me to do the job. And I don't take any of that for granted. And so even, you know, having this larger conversation about journalism and the ethos and all of that, it just, it instills in me just in this moment, this kind of gratitude that I get to do it and that people, the fans, um, trust me, trust us to be able to give them information, commentary, whatever and I, I just wanted to say in this moment that I don't take for granted mm-hmm. their 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 responsibility or means in letting us do this and them watching or listening to this show and letting it letting us do it here well since, since the theme of the, so far the show so far has been transparency let, let's talk about the worst kept secrets in NASCAR for what three months now yeah uh, um, like I can't. I don't know when Utter first reported that he he'd be go. Brad Kozlowski would be going to Roush, but it was around the same time that North Carolina announced that North Wilkesboro was going to get money. It was at the, I think it was that same week. Um, so it has been a while, but it, it was finally made official yesterday. Brad Kozlowski, 2012 NASCAR Cup Series champion, is now going to be a minority owner. Uh, at Roush Fenway Racing, he's going to be head of the competition committee. That wasn't known uh, before yesterday, and he's going to be driving the number six Ford um, after a decade of driving the number two at Team Penske. Um, so, Matt, like, what does this, what do you what does this mean for Roush Fenway Racing? What does this mean for Brad Keselowski? What does this mean for the Cup Series going into twenty twenty two? A cheap plug. I wrote a story on Auto Week where I detailed why I thought it made all the sense in the world. And it, it does. Like, it makes a ton of sense. So next year, we have this new car. Yeah. Next gen car. Listen, a lot of people have said, why would Brad leave the any any deal, any deal presented to him? Two to three years is what Roger said he would have wanted Brad for. Well, yeah, they, 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 yeah, they offered, Pinsky said they offered him a two-year extension. He only took the one. Yeah. Um, so Brad was thinking, like, he was planning right. for so, something. So, like, and a lot of people have said, well, you know, you could just drive for for Roger two to three more years, and you could still go be a car owner in some other capacity. Maybe the Ralph still is still there. Maybe another deal presents itself. But I think this next-gen car is such a blank sheet of paper for everyone. I know Ralph has had a really bad go of it this past oh, yeah. decade. And so people are like, well, why would Brad want to go drive there? Because they, they run 18th every week. Who knows what this new car is going to mean for them? You know, mm-hmm. it's going to be a blank slate for everyone. And what happened to Roush over, you know, the last decade is that they got so behind. I, I, yeah, I got, I got some, I got some numbers. Um, Carl Edwards, his final season was 2014. Uh, his last season with Roush was 2014. He finished in the points ninth that year. Uh, since then, their best points finish in the last uh, six, seven years, uh, Stenhouse finished 13th in 2017. He won, you know, twice that year at Talladega and Daytona. And after that, Ryan Newman finished 15th in 2019. And right now, Chris Buescher is 16th in points. Uh, and Ryan Newman is 27th. Um, and he finished 25th in points last year. And he missed three races. Um, so, yeah, that, that's where Rush Finley Racing is right now. They've only won two races since. So what happened was is that they fell behind early with this car and 
this car has gone through so many various rule changes and reconfigurations that even if they started to make gains on, on, on the platform, on just basic means of finding downforce, whatever they find, Hendrick Gibbs, Stuart Haas, then go here. So you're still behind. And I, in, my, in my feature, I, I said that basically, it's like starting every race a lap down. You spend the entire mm. race, you get, you get back on the lead lap. Great, you're on the lead lap. But guess what? You're still on the tail end of the lead lap. Meanwhile, you take the green flag, Gibbs, Stuart Haas, Penske, they take the green flag and mm. they're gapping you again. So there was no scenario in which Roush, even if they had the best people and threw a ton of money at it, you can't just gain the the informational divide that you lost in 2013, 14, and 15. And, and certainly losing the caliber of, of, of an Edwards and a Kenza, that's part of it. It's not all of it. Yeah. But their veteran feedback was so valuable, especially, listen, Matt, too, but especially Carl. Um, I can tell you that in my earliest days being full-time on the beat anytime i had a question about aero or engineering i went to two people they were biffle and edwards because they are just such brilliant you know racers and mechanical minds and matt to a lesser extent but certainly matt too <laughs> and now those those guys are gone yeah newman provides that a little bit make no mistake but they're so far behind but it just, it just doesn't matter. It, you could hire Chad Canals, and I don't think Chad could, could bridge that gap because they're just so far behind. Now, new car. Everyone starts over mm -hmm. the same line. We're going to have a 36-wide metaphorical start. <laughs> it's about what you learn starting right now and what you learn those first couple of months, that first season. Brad, I, I, I'm, I am curious to see if Richard Childress Racing has even the slightest of advantages over as the field. I think they will. It's, so. fair, it's fair to assume they will. Yeah. Totally. So um, Brad is banking on the fact that he, he wants the responsibility of on the ground floor level, if it fails, it's because I sent you the wrong direction. If it works, I sent you in the right direction. And you can't do that two, three years yeah. down the road, jump in, because maybe Roush is behind again. Maybe Roush falls really behind on this new spec car. Yeah. And then by the time Brad gets there as a driver owner or just an owner, they're already running 18th again. So he wants to do it right now from this blank sheet of paper. And I think that is the most appealing thing to him. I mean, we could talk about the, the ownership element. We can talk about the competition element. But above all else, he wants to build something from the ground floor at the very beginning. And, you know, Jack Roush, fellow Michigander with deep ties to Ford, Roush Industries, Kozlowski Advanced Manufacturing, the B2B mm -hmm. opportunities of bridging these two, you know, um, all, this just, just technology. That's what they are. Yeah. They are in the technology business. The you know, the space engineering, uh, the manufacturing, the, the automotive businesses, Roush Industries and KAM are both in that field. And now you can marry them together. It just makes all the sense in the world. Ford, Michigan, Jack Roush, Brad Kozlowski, new car. Yeah, and, and St Steve Newmark said yesterday that Chris Buescher had told him in the spring at some point that Chris Buescher said, he's like, you know, Brad Kozlowski is like the closest thing to Jack Roush in the garage when it comes to like being analytical and stuff like that. And I, I never really thought about that. I mean, Brad Kozlowski is the most, you know, he's a, he's a thinker. Like he's well, the like, word that, that, that Steve used was cere cerebral. Yeah. He, cerebral. Yeah, cerebral. cerebral. Like if, if you want a well, like thought out answer or an answer that sounds well thought out, um, Brad Kozlowski is the guy. Um, I don't think I've heard him give a, answer that didn't sound like someone had thought about it beforehand so let me, let me um, tell you my, my favorite thing about brad kozlowski there are some things that i will absolutely die on the hill with brad kozlowski on there are some things i won't <laughs> but what i appreciate about brad 
Brad is very thoughtful in his delivery yeah. and where he comes from. It was not a hot take. It did not come off the, you know, off the hip. He puts thought into everything he says and does. And I have no doubt now being able to, you know, sit back and, and look at it. The moment that he closed Brad Keselowski racing, I think this was the vision. You build KAM. I'm sure I, I'm sure if, if you were to get him to be totally honest, he would have said Jack Roush is the guy I want to do this with because of the Roush Industries mm-hmm. element and Ford. I Brad is such a, a big picture, long-term planner, thinker kind of guy that I, I don't think any of this was short-sighted. I don't think any of this came together late. I think there's a reason that Steve Newmark told the press yesterday that we've been talking for years for the, for the, you know, the, mm. the owners meetings and the sanctioning body and owner meetings and Steve Newmark would kind of lean on Brad for perspective. Why would Steve Newmark of Roush lean on Brad Keselowski of Penske for perspective? I think mm. everyone kind of saw the pieces that Brad was laying and how it aligned with Jack Roush and Ford. And I promise you there's probably Jack, Steve, Brad, Ford. I guarantee you those four entities probably had some idea that this was a possibility four years ago. Well, I mean, Brad was pretty open when he shut down the truck team that he, he wanted to be an owner again at yeah. some point down the road. Um, I, I don't think I would have conceived that it was going to happen quite like this, um, but this is how it's happening. And it's, it's going to be really interesting because like Roush has not been a contender for years. Brad Kozlowski has he, his two major stops in his career, Junior Motorsports in the, in the Xfinity Series and Team Penske in the Cup. He has improved. Um, like he was one of Junior Motorsports' first winners. And the numbers after Brad Kozlowski arrived at Team Penske showed that Team Penske was a better team than be- before he got there. He gave them their first Cup title. He picked Joey Logano. To, 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 or he didn't pick, but he encouraged them to, to, to pick up Joey Logano. He um, he lobbied hard. So so his impact on teams is tangible. So I mean, the, the analogy that everyone made, including Brad, Tony Stewart, Gene mm-hmm. Haas. Well, did you see did you see like the stat comparison between yeah. what would like top tens, wins, championship, two championships? Totally, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, only yeah. Though yeah, pretty much the only difference was that Stewart has that one more championship. I mean, Brad did. Brad's numbers are from a more spread out period of time, though, because he got into this at such a young age. Tony's was more condensed, but still, those numbers are eye opening. It's like, oh wow, he could. Brad could really. Uh, he he was asked a very like what I thought was an important question. Do you feel like it, at some point, it, on any level, you're sacrificing a couple of years of your present for the future? And I I I think he is. I don't think. He he it's might. A new car. It's literally I, a new I, car. I know, I know it is. I'm, but I'm just, you know, gut gut feeling like. I think he'll put it on the super speedways as usual. Everything else past that, I just don't know because it is a new car. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it's there's so much, there's so many spinning plates with this. It's it's fascinating. So, so I, I can tell you that like his old GM from Brad Kozlowski Racing. Jeremy Thompson has been spending a lot of time at, at Roush and I'm sure behind the scenes, Brad has kind of been planting the seeds for different areas that he wants to water as soon as we get done at Phoenix and he walks in the door there. And so I, I think that right off the bat next year, he's going to have parts and pieces and the people that he believes he needs to win immediately. Because keep in mind, if he doesn't win immediately, I don't know if there's any catching up for the same reasons Roush can't catch up now. So he needs to be immediately competitive because yeah. if he's not, that's where they're going to be with this new car. There's no there's no figuring it out four years from now because four years from now, whatever you have to figure out, everyone else is going to have four more years of information they've already figured out. And you're just going to be trapped. And by the way, it's a spec car. So you can't even like r&d and develop new pieces yeah what you've learned is what you got 
you have to be immediately competitive, which is why he wants to be there now and not two to three years from now. Well, one thing I'll say, I, I am surprised that Brad, depending on what happens here in the next few months, I, I am surprised that Brad Kozlowski is going to be a cup team owner before Dale Earnhardt Jr. Yeah. Right. <laughs> the, the, things could change in the next few months. So, uh, but he, he, he got that announcement out first anyway. Brad, um, if you think about Brad's story, it's actually really remarkable, you know, sort of what's what's where I'm looking for the, the chance occurrences or, you know, the fate or whatever, the stars aligning, planets yeah. aligning, all the things that had to happen for him to even be a NASCAR regular. And then the things that he needed to have happen to become a cup series regular winning Talladega for James Finch was huge because it helped him build this brand as a short track guy. I know the Keselowski's, but winning Talladega made the larger audience know who Brad Keselowski was. Mm. And then to be able to capitalize on driving the Verizon 12 car and, and doing so well there that it allowed him to drive the two car and it was the flagship car and to build his brand around that, it took a lot of like very precise moments in time going his way when they could have not gone his way. And it's a completely different story. What if yeah. what if Brian gets the, the ride that that he was ultimately given in the truck series? Brian didn't have a an Asker license. Brad did. What if Carl you, Edwards wins you, in Talladega? You say, when, you, when you say Brian, you mean Brian... Kislowski. Okay, okay, that's what I thought. All right. You know that story, right? I don't think so. No, okay, so that's the story. So Brad's big opportunity in the Jermaine truck came because they offered it to Brian first. Mm. Brian didn't have an NASCAR license. Brad did. So oh, Brad wow. drove the truck. Brian was supposed to drive the truck. He didn't have an NASCAR license. I didn't so, know that. Right. So that's what I'm trying to say. So all these like little things that happened along the way that could have been completely different. It was just a chance occurrence that he had the license. Brian didn't. What, he won't tell it again, not Carl. What gear was it that Brian got like a one-off shot in a BKR truck at Talladega and was, yeah. had a shot to win late. Yeah. I think he, I think he ran out of gas. He did. Is that he it? Did. Okay. So that was a cool story too. Cause I, I talked to both of them for that story. So this was like 20, 13, 14, 15, I don't know. I don't know. All these years run together. But Brad and Brian have not always been on great terms. And especially before that moment, they did not really get along well. There is some underlying tension between mm. them. Brad wrote a, a blog about it. So I would encourage everyone to go find Brad's okay. blog about Brian that led to him driving the truck at Talladega. Um, they fought bad. And, and Brian being put in the truck for Talladega was kind of this moment that brought them back together. And I, I don't know what their, their current status is now, but I love that race. I love that Brad was able to use, it was Austin Terrio's seat, right? Didn't Terrio have the concussion? And that's why it happened? Uh, I, I know he, he I, I, I don't know. This is what happened. Terrio had the concussion and they needed someone to fill the seat along the way. Joey drove it at some point. Brad drove it at some point, but for Talladega, he asked Brian to do it. And that was such a cool moment for their family because Brad and Brian haven't always saw eye to eye. Hmm. 